Hello and a big welcome to episode two of Hear Her, Pioneers in International Health. I'm Amber. And I'm Tista. Well, it's been a month since we last chatted, Tista. Uh, do you have any highlights you want to share with our listeners? What's been happening with you? Oh my goodness. Um, what an exciting month to kick off series two. And I don't know about the listeners at home, but I've been grappling with this crazy weather that we've been having in the UK. Uh, <laughs> from rain to hail to sun, all in the same day. I don't really know um, what season we're in. Um, but yeah, work has been really busy. So um been trying to get through my regulatory approvals um, sorted for our projects in Uganda. Um, but have, and then have also been lucky to publish my first paper from my PhD. <laughs> yeah, which Congrats. is so great. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I've just started a new role within the knowledge synthesis team at PMNCH, which has been hugely exciting. So yeah, it's been, it feels like it's been a really busy month, actually. How about you, Amber? How have you been? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, I love May. I love the nights getting longer. <laughs> Um, it's been the start of our second series and it's also been my birthday month which is cool so I've had a couple of weeks annual leave actually and was spending some time with friends and with family definitely got a few more gray hairs than before (laughs) but I'm okay with that (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's not true um but it sounds like you know you've had a fantastic month and actually like you say it's been a great start to our second series Um, And this month has been really jam-packed with um, the introductions from the newest members of the Sanya sister family, to Lenka's thought-provoking episode, to Katrina Waite's created video, where she highlighted some of the work she's been doing on including pregnant and breastfeeding women in research. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've really loved all the discussions and interactions we've had on social media, thinking about supportive honesty, bi-directional learning, and reading more broadly. Yeah, it's been so helpful and I've really enjoyed just delving into some of these topics a bit more and we just wanted to give um, a shout out to the African women in Science Hub who were inspired and challenged to think differently having listened to Lenka's episode and you may remember our guest from last series, um, Dr. Adura Bank-Thomas and he had shared with us how encouraged he was just Uh, to be learning from other disciplines that there's no real need to reinvent the wheel as such and a huge thank you as well to many of you who joined our discussion about the importance of the language that we use when we're discussing pregnant and breastfeeding women this is a real topic that needs careful consideration and it has been incredible to interact with so many listeners from across the globe and this month we've had people from Slovakia from Uganda from Belgium, from Tanzania, just to name a few. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. We're really grateful for your support. And there's just been so much going on. Um, If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to everything from episode one and our first month, please do head over to our Twitter page, um, at Sanya Sisters, to look back at some of the discussions, videos, and polls that we've had. We're really keen to share as many stories and projects from across the globe. So why not drop us an email at sanyasisterspodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you're working on. Now this episode, we are delighted to have the inspiring Dame Professor Tina Lavender with us (laughs) from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And she's been chatting to Amber. So let's have a listen to what she's got to say. (music) 
Well, this episode, I am delighted to welcome to the Sanya Sisters podcast, Dame Professor Tina Lavender. Now, for those of you who don't know, Tina is a professor of maternal and newborn health and has recently come back to Liverpool as director of a World Health Organization collaborating centre at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. As if that wasn't enough, Tina is also a qualified midwife. She's visiting professor at the University of Nairobi. She's director of the NIHR Global Health and Research Group on prevention and management of stillbirth in sub-Saharan Africa. She also is the editor to journals. She's an advisor to the WHO and I think very deservedly was listed in the BBC's top 100 women a few years back. Now, Tina, I could go on and on listing your achievements and your accolades as there are many, but I think the listeners would probably prefer to hear it from the horse's mouth. So thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome and thank you for inviting me to be here. So Kicking off, really, it would be great to hear a little bit more about where your passion for global maternal and newborn health has come from. Okay, well, as you you said in your very kind introduction, um, that my passion really is midwifery. I am a midwife. I'm very proud of that fact. And the way I got into global health, um, in particular research, was um, quite serendipitous. I was actually at the Liverpool Women's Hospital and there was a visitor um, from Tanzania who was a midwife, Rose Malai, mm-hmm. and I was asked whether I would go and meet with her. Um, any midwives that are listening to this podcast will know that midwives are one big family and we're always happy to chat to each other. So I went and um, met with her and we chatted and she actually invited me to go to Tanzania to present at a conference and to discuss evidence-based practice. And this was uh, 21 years ago now that I went to Tanzania, not really knowing what to what to expect. Um, I hadn't been to Africa before and I was just absolutely bowled over by the passion of the midwives there and the challenges that they faced. And um, from that point onwards, really, I never looked back. I was just hooked into global health research. Um, So that was where it all started. So very much by chance, to be honest with you. Okay. And how have things progressed for you then? More than just a bit of an interest? Yeah, well, when I was actually at that particular event, you know, I got the opportunity to meet with some very inspirational midwives and um, we sat and we discussed some of the major gaps in the evidence and and decided we would develop a plan to see how we could tackle these things. Mm -hmm. I was very naive at the time I'm sure in terms of global health Um, but I I was a researcher in the UK as well as being a midwife and I was able to um, support some of the activities and we, as a team, um, as a collaboration, we decided we would put in some small grants to start pump priming some of the work that we wanted to do. And, you know, successful with some of these, we did things like, you know, we built collaborations with others like WHO and um, some of the obstetricians that I knew who were working in, in global health, as well as other professions. And um, that was where it really started. It just really snowballed from development of small ideas into small proposals that then snowballed into bigger proposals and stronger collaborations. And um, it went on from there, really. Um, And I mean, I think there was probably, you know, some 
key moments um, during that global health journey. I think that one of those was we applied for a um, multi-country grant from the Tropical Health Education Trust and um, we were successful. And this was really the catalyst to some of the major work that we've conducted. So from that point, we were working with um, six different countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So that was Kenya, Malawi, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Uganda. And as a team, we decided to move from evidence-based practice to midwives really leading their own research within their own settings and addressing the problems that were really important to them. And um, historically, the problem was always that the midwives collected the data for others um, and were addressing, you know, their issues, you know, which, you know, may be equally valuable, but midwives started to question, well, actually, these are things that are really important to us in our daily practice. And these are the things that we want to, um, these are questions that we want to answer. And therefore, we decided to apply for this multi-centre um, grant, multi-centre partnership grant. And that was a, a capacity development programme where we trained midwives in actually doing research rather than using the research. And we had a buddying programme. So um, each midwife on the programme would buddy with an academic midwife in the UK. Okay. And we would take them through the process. So as they were actually doing the research, we were also doing the training. Mm-hmm. Um So just to give you an example of that, so when they were doing their literature review, we were doing the training on the literature review and then we would have a period of time and then we'd come back um, and then we would perhaps do the data collection. So we'd have theoretical sessions on data collection, um, which would run in parallel to them being able to collect the data. Um, Mm -hmm. And from that programme of work, we were able to develop some really strong pieces of research that we we took forward. That was the catalyst to then applying to the NIHR, look at prevention and management of stillbirth, and that was the Global Health Research Group, which you mentioned in your introduction. So that's that's kind of a whistle-stop tour of our journey. So it's been a long relationship. I mean, just hearing that, it makes so much sense, doesn't it, to think about training those guys alongside actually doing what needs to be done. I think that's such a practical way yeah. of of learning, isn't it, as well? And certainly in, encourage, encouraging to hear. Out of all the things that you've done, what is the most unique project that you've been involved with or maybe the project you've been most proud of? I think um, I think really there's, there's two different um, projects for different reasons that um, I'm proud of. And I would say if I asked the team um, as a whole, they would be proud of. And one of them is quite um, a small project, but it's had quite a, an impact and That is um, the development of educational board games for midwives. And that was funded by the Lerdle Foundation. The reason why we decided to develop educational games was that the midwives that we were in partnership with were saying that the the education was very didactic and there was um, issues in terms of, you know, large sizes, um, large classroom sizes, lots of students, and there wasn't really that interaction. So it was very much 
lecture, you know, notes, information, you know, the traditional style of education. So we, we prioritise some areas and we've now developed three educational board games and um, we've also subjected them to quasi-experiments to see whether they actually impact on on students and midwives' um, knowledge and understanding and whether they influence practice as well. And we've developed three games. One board game is to look at um, managing labour. Another one is looking at the different causes of maternal morbidity and mortality. And the third one is to do with respect for maternal and newborn care. And um, these have had, you know, a, a lot of positive feedback from lots of different countries, not just the six countries that developed them. Um, so we've been really proud, proud of them and there's been real ownership of these games, you know, in country, which is obviously very important. Wow. And what are the games called for any of our listeners keen to look into it more? So the labour one is called Progression. Mm-hmm. And then the maternal morbidity one is called Crisis. Mm-hmm. And the respectful care one is called Dignity. Well, there we go. So, so that, that was a really important educational project that, that we developed. And then the other um, programme of work really is the prevention and management of stillbirth in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Because what we tried to do within this was to look at some of the practice issues as well, you know. Um, so we've looked at prevention in terms of women who have had a stillbirth and then a sub- and then are subsequently pregnant, and you know what care they receive. Um, we've also looked at how um, women families are um, supported after they've had a stillbirth mm-hmm. so we've done a lot of work a lot of work on bereavement care and i think that the important thing about this program is that we have been able to see a lot of impact of the work we've done um and in terms of things like advocacy yeah. when we first started the program of work um I remember the first meeting I went to in Kenya, we had a stakeholders meeting and we all sat around and I presented the project and and then there was just totally silence. And um, I said, has anybody got any questions? Anybody got any thoughts, any discussions, etc.? you know, as you do? And there was just deathly silence and I was thinking, oh, what have I said, you know? And then one of the matrons said, we don't talk about stillbirth you know and these were health professionals so we we knew at that point that we had you know we had a big challenge on our hands to you know to be able to get people to open up talk about the issue of stillbirth um because that's obviously the first step to making changes Mm -hmm. um so that was our starting point and you know that that very same hospital um has done so much on this project in terms of developing bereavement guidelines, introducing counselling, having dedicated rooms for women who um, have birth to baby who's stillborn and introducing peer supporters. Um, You know, they've done so much. So after, you know, the four years project, when you look back and see, well, you know, we have made a difference. That's why it's all all worthwhile, really. Absolutely. So I think that that programme has been, for me, you know, the most impactful, definitely. Yeah. It sounds like you really um, addressed the barriers um, or certainly highlighted them to then try and deal with them. And it sounds like it's made a huge impact on 
many different levels and for women individually families individually certainly as well as the wider sort of community I'm sure yeah I think so I mean I I mean there's still a lot of work to do but at least we've we're starting to chip away at it really and um, you know in other parts of our program we've done other things so for example in Zimbabwe um, one of the problems was the the high percentage of women who had recurrent stillbirths so um, we introduced a child, um, a, a clinic specifically for women who'd had a previous stillbirth so that they could get the physical support, but also the, the psychological support as well. And the clinic is called a Tembani Clinic, okay. um, which means hope, um, which, um, you know, and that that has been really successful. And, you know, it's going to be sustained beyond you know the research which is obviously really important in global Mm -hmm. health because often people do projects and then they go and and everything falls apart and it's not sustained um but one of the things that we made sure as a team was that anything that we did you know if it showed that it had positive results that we would implement um ways of sustaining those interventions And that's what we've tried to do. So that's another another aspect that we've been very proud of. Brilliant. That's fascinating, fascinating to hear about and just so encouraging. And I think in it's a podcast in itself, isn't it? Thinking about sustainability, especially in global health, it's such a massive topic. And yeah, not just doing something good for while the money's there or <laughs> um, to make us feel good, but actually to impact real people in real lives. Uh, so crucial absolutely and I think that you know some of the partners they have these sayings about people being people being seagulls and you know meaning that sometimes researchers sweep in and sweep out and they're never seen again Um, whereas I think that the benefit of having long-term partnerships are that you build that relationship and you bring build you know the equal partnership which is really important because obviously we all learn from each other and we've all developed together. Um, I, I think that's absolutely crucial to sustainability and to having a real impact. I think the other thing that has been really important for the work we've done is that we've introduced um, community engagement and involvement groups okay. within the six sub-Saharan African countries that we work with. And these um, groups are made up from women who have had a stillbirth and in some countries also um, the male partners as well. And these have really helped to identify the most important research questions and helped to give advice on the design of the studies, the recruitment and ethic and consent processes. You know, they've really helped with lots of different aspects of delivery of the projects we've conducted, including, you know, the best way of interpreting and disseminating our findings. And I think at the outset, we probably hadn't realised how important those groups would be to us. Um, And I think that, you know, when you use community engagement involvement groups properly, they can just be a huge asset um, to the project with more meaningful findings. So I think that that's one of the successes. Was there times in those meetings or, you know, those discussions where you were totally surprised or what they were suggesting was just like, oh, we really haven't even thought about that or considered that? Well, I think there was, there was a few things really, but things like the fact that, you know, 
who would be the best person to actually go out and do the interviews. So, for example, when um, we were conducting interviews in the communities, the the women in the community engagement involvement groups were saying, you know, we don't want a young girl coming out. So they didn't want the the younger research assistants. They wanted somebody more mature. Um, or, you know, the, the male partners would want one of the male research okay. assistants, not one of the female ones. Um, so there was, there was things like that. Um, there was other things. So, for example, in some of the surveys that we had, we, we had one meeting um, in Uganda when we showed the community engagement group, you know, the questions we were going to ask, and they just all burst out laughing because of the way we phrased really? things. <laughs> and, yeah, they just found it really funny. And so, you know, we spent quite a while rewording, rephrasing, and little things like that can make a huge difference. So, yeah, something really important to think about whenever you're um, doing research in a in a cultural context that is not our own and something we're not familiar with. That's brilliant. I think in the way of keeping it real, I was wondering, have you had any challenges or barriers, perhaps, maybe being a woman? Yeah, it's quite interesting, really. I think that um, it's only when you step back and you you know, you know you look, you reflect that you think that you realise that maybe there has been some influences. I think that um, midwives in some of the countries where we work don't have the status of... Um, for example, obstetricians. And even when I've been leading a, a project and been accompanied by an obstetrician, um, people within the, you know, the higher positions would direct their questions and answers to the obstetrician, not me as a midwife, even though I'm the lead of the project. <laughs> so, and I think that's to do with the hierarchies of roles within those particular countries. I think similarly, you know, um, as a female, sometimes that um, that male that sometimes females, I think, are overlooked um, when there's males there. But I think that once you've built those relationships and, and people trust you and they see the work that you do, um, then then all those things dissipate in a way. But I think that it is, in many ways, I think, more of a challenge to get those inroads, particularly with people, for example, in ministries, etc. Um, if you are a woman and a midwife, um, I think then sometimes there's issues. I think one of the other challenging things that I have found and felt extremely comfortable about is that sometimes when I've been with my uh, African um, Midwife partners, and we've gone to meetings that questions have been directed to me and not to them. You know, even if they were the lead partner, um, and I think that there are still a lot of unconscious biases there. Um, so, so that's something that I think is still a challenge. I think they are things absolutely that need to be addressed, and I think I can just totally identify with that idea of long-standing relationships with people that. Um, once people truly get to know you, understand you, I think some of those barriers potentially uh, do sort of melt away and dissipate. One thing I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, and I mean, you've obviously been very successful in your career to date and over, you know, for whatever challenges you have faced, you have absolutely overcome them. <laughs> Does imposter syndrome ever creep in thinking, oh, I shouldn't go for that, or that would be really difficult to apply for, or how have you dealt with that throughout your career? 
Oh gosh, imposter syndrome pops its head up all the time with me, to be honest with you. <laughs> and um, uh, for those of you who know accents, know that I'm from Liverpool. So, you know, I, I recall my, my dad saying to me, you'll never get anywhere, Tina, with a Scouse accent. <laughs> and uh, and I, I keep reminding him of that now, actually. <laughs> um, but no, the imposter syndrome is always there. And, you know, and I think it's just a privilege to work in this arena. And, you know, every week I kind of think wow you know I'm doing this amazing job with some amazing people and hopefully having you know some impact for benefit of others and I can't think of a better better job you know but but yes the imposter syndrome is there all the time. Well it's reassuring to hear that it's um, with people at the top it's still very much a much a thing and you definitely have got somewhere with a Scottish accent so uh... (laughs) (laughs) perhaps your dad was incorrect on that one. And from your point of view, then looking forward, what what does the future global maternal newborn health look like um, in your world, in your sphere? What are you focusing on? Well, obviously, you know, there's um, lots of uncertainty at the moment, particularly with the cuts in ODA funding. But also, there are some positives in terms of you know, you know, being a real first for collaborations, which has been evidenced by the COVID vaccines. So. I think there are lots of real positives at the moment, and I'm quite an optimistic person. I'd like to think that going forward, we will build on the work that we've already conducted on the prevention and management of stillbirth, and also to expand that to the neonate as well, because Mm -hmm. in the countries that we're working, neonatal deaths are also very high. We would like to take this work forward by doing some large trials, looking at access to care and bereavement care is one of the strongest elements of our work I would say. Also doing some more work on respectful maternal and newborn care because it always rears its head as a problem but very few people are doing anything to actually tackle it and it's about looking at how we could develop interventions that are owned by the the health providers that could actually make a difference. And then there's other work that we feel that's probably necessary related to adolescents because Mm -hmm. they're um, obviously a vulnerable group related to stillbirth, neonatal death, as well as poor maternal and newborn experiences. And then the other area that we're particularly working in and would like to, to further is looking at women following obstetric fistula okay, yeah. um, so these are probably some of the most vulnerable women in the world you know and there's an association between stillbirth and obstetric fistula so not only do these women not have a baby but also that they're in contact of urine and sometimes feces as mm-hmm. well and this physical impact is you know, huge, but the social and psychological impact as well is is massive. You know, they're often abandoned by their partners. They, you know, they're often ostracised. And, you know, in some countries, they're even named a mongoose, you know, which is an animal that's foul-smelling and isolating. So, you know, this is one of the work streams that we're also looking at seeing you know what can we do to support these women and even after they've had a fistula repair which some of them do how do you then 
reintegrate them into a community that has abandoned them previously. Yes. So, um, yeah, so they're the kind of areas that maternal and newborn health that we would like to take forward. Uh, I think they're all really important and they address issues of vulnerability as well. I think this um, one of the strengths of the work that, that I do, you know, with the, the team around me is looking at, you know, physical, but also looking at the social and psychological impacts as well. I think that that's the strength of the work that we're carrying out. When you think of health, it's more than just a physical component. So I think a lot of the work that you're doing is addressing health as a whole rather rather than just physical problems. And it's just super exciting to hear. And I'm sure myself, Tista and all our listeners will be following your work to see how that pans out in the future. And it certainly is covering the whole continuum. Now, Tina, something we're asking all our guests is what one piece of advice would you give to a much younger Tina Lavender starting out in a career in global health? Okay, I think that the most important thing is to try and develop relationships, try and work with people who are already in the global health arena, learn from others, definitely. Don't go in thinking that you're going to change the world. You're absolutely not. And I think that, you know, be conscious of the fact that you will learn as much as your partners will learn as well. And I think that that's really important. It has to be a two-way process. I think also, you know, be aware that there will be challenges, but the challenges are definitely worth pursuing. You know, the, the, the rewards, both in terms of your own experience, but more importantly, you know, the impact that you can have, you know, it, you, know you can't really quantify that. Yeah. Wow, that is some some good top tips there. There's quite a few um, and all very, very pertinent, I think, to those who are wanting to advance and start out a career in, in global health. And obviously, now, whether or not you would think this yourself, you are definitely a role model for so many. But who has been a female role model for you? I think I would have to say Helen Legina, the late Helen. Unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago. She was a professor of midwifery in Tanzania. And she was a real pioneer for evidence-based midwifery practice. And I actually met Helen on that very first conference that yes. I told you about, um, like, you know, 21 years ago. And um, I totally admired her tenacity and her motivation to try and make improvements, not just for women and babies, but also for the health providers as well. Even in her, you know, in her home life, she was also, you know, always striving for doing the best for women and trying to encourage um, equity. And I went to dinner with Helen, and this was very early on. Um, when I'd only just started to get to know her, we went to dinner and um, in a restaurant and she ordered a tilapia, which was the local fish, and her tilapia came and there was a gentleman on the next table who was also eating a tilapia. And she called the waitress over and said, what am I eating? And the waitress said, you're eating a tilapia. So she said, and can you tell me what that gentleman's eating? And um, the waitress said, he's also eating a tilapia. Now, Helen's tilapia was half the size of the gentleman's. So Helen said, so how much is he paying for his tilapia? And she said, $5. So Helen said, right, well, you need to take mine away because I'm not paying $5 for the same, for the, a fish that's half the size 
of the gentleman, and she told the waiter to take her fish away and bring back a larger fish. And I actually thought, you know, in that context at that time, that was, you know, a very brave thing to do. And that was her saying, just because I'm a woman, don't give me half a fish, you know. And she was always doing things, you know, just to strive for equity for women. And um, I really admired her for that. And I think that she was the motivation behind the network of the six countries. And in fact, we decided we would call the network the Lagina African Midwives Research Network in her honour. What a lovely story. (laughs) she sounds like an incredible (laughs) woman I mean yeah a bit of a trailblazer all over a tilapia but as you say it's the um it's the the message behind it isn't it and it's someone's yeah tenacity someone's drive someone's inner character isn't it to say that's not okay I'm not standing for it and it certainly sounds like Helen Helen was that person Tina it really has been a total pleasure hearing a bit about your journey into global maternal and newborn health and how you've got to where you are your successes are many and no doubt the future holds many many good things for you and the team that are surrounding you but I know that behind the scenes there is always a lot of hard work there's a lot of sacrifice and there are challenges that are being overcome that we probably will never will never know about we'll never see but it's been really inspiring, really encouraging to hear just a bit about your journey. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Well, Tista, what did you think of all that? Wow. Well, firstly, it's safe to say that having a Scouse accent has definitely not held Tina back (laughs) in the slightest. I would agree. (laughs) It was so inspiring and fascinating to hear all the incredible projects she's led on and the progress she's made for the well-being and health of mothers and newborns. To me, one of the most inspiring anecdotes Tina shared um, was when she discussed presenting at a clinical meeting with healthcare practitioners about stillbirths and how she realized how uncomfortable many of the clinicians were describing stillbirths and discussing it. And yet, as she mentioned, these were the same healthcare workers providing care for women and their families. And so if they're uncomfortable merely discussing it in a clinical meeting, how were they going to be able to support um, mothers and their families going forward? So it was really inspiring to hear how she responded to this challenge by developing these innovative tools like the educational board games, which sound fantastic, um, and being able to get providers comfortable learning and talking about stillbirth to improve the care that they provided. Um, It really did resonate with me that outside being caregivers, midwives have such a unique and critical role in being advocates for the health and well-being Mm -hmm. of mothers and their babies and really have that strong role in ensuring that they receive the high quality care that they deserve. Um, And on the topic of advocacy, I loved her commitment to striving for gender equity. I think the story of the tilapia really, (laughs) yeah, totally. I will never look at a tilapia in the same light again. Um, And it definitely just made me think that, of course, just because I'm a woman, I don't need to accept half a fish. I think we all play a huge role in leveling this field. And I really felt inspired hearing the active steps that Tina has taken to do this. I love that story. And it was just a a really simple story, but with a really poignant point, I guess, uh, underlying it all. Um, 
I could have chatted to Tina all day long. There's so many aspects of her career that I was just really encouraged by, inspired by. And I guess there's been two things that I've sort of mulled over following my chat with her. And the first would be the idea of sustainability within research. And I think we could probably extend that um, to project related work into the voluntary sector as well. Tina had mentioned this idea of seagull mentality and um, I guess the concept would be that researchers or volunteers or whoever it may be would swoop down, take what they need or what they could get and then fly off again, never to be seen. And working in that fashion does not benefit the society. It certainly doesn't benefit the participants of the research in the long term. And I do think there is a real responsibility for those of us working in low middle income countries to really give serious consideration and thought Um, If the work that we're doing is of benefit to that population, then how best can we continue that? Um, Maybe once the funding has finished or um, our time frame is up, how we can, um, you know, sustain the work that we've been doing. And the other thing I really loved was Tina was very clearly proud to be a midwife. And I just really admired her in being a champion and an advocate in her spheres to help build the capacity um, and give midwives autonomy, especially within research and academia. Yeah, She had sort of said through her experiences and historically midwives perhaps took the role of data collection on the behalf of others to be contributing to their work. But she is so passionate and has lived this out essentially in training up midwives um, to come up with their own research questions that are relevant to the work they're doing um, to bring those to the forefront and then be equipped with the skills to actually be able to answer their own research questions. And I just thought, what a great way of thinking about things. And she's really, really um, done that and continues to do that. So, yeah, they were a few of the things that I've been thinking about since my chat with her. Definitely. And I think it is that that concept of ownership, which has is so empowering for for many of us working in this field. Yeah, there have been just so many amazing key take-homes from this episode. And so it's a good job that we've got an entire month to keep (laughs) reflecting and learning and discussing in more detail over all of our social media platforms. So please do keep an eye out because we've got some fantastic videos from other projects happening across the world that we can't wait to share with you. If you haven't already, please do make sure that you're following us on Twitter and Facebook, which is at Sunny Sisters, and on Instagram, at Sunny Sisters Podcast. And next time, Tista will be chatting to Franca Cade, who is the president of the International Confederation of Midwives. Franca has had an incredible career and is regarded very highly in her field and is an advisor within International Maternal Health. So we can't wait to share her story with you. Until next time. 